The United States of America has long built itself as a land of opportunity, as a beacon of freedom to the world and a shelter for those fleeing the persecution and tyranny of distant shores. A city on the hill whose noble character is best embodied by the Statue of Liberty and the immortalized words of Emma Lazarus inscribed into her pedestal. Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. There's just one small caveat. Well, of course, that poem was referring back to people coming from Europe. In the US, opportunity has always been encoded into race. European settlers arriving on its shores were granted the opportunity for free land, provided they were willing to help slaughter that land's original inhabitants. Their descendants were offered the opportunity to own slaves and the right to kill, beat, or rape them with total impunity, provided they agreed to help hunt down any other slaves that tried to escape. Even today, despite the declining premium placed on their European heritage, white Americans still enjoy the opportunity to live without the constant fear of being executed by police during a random traffic stop or deported while attempting to pick their kids up from school. Children effectively abandoned because their parents were swept up. For centuries, the implicit bribe of white supremacy has served as the primary anchor for social control in the so-called United States. Although it has assumed different forms over the years, the maintenance and perpetuation of this internal caste system has always remained a top priority of the ruling class. Politicians have used it as a tool to project white working class fear, paranoia, and anger onto perceived racial enemies, both foreign and domestic. Under the Trump administration, this practice has assumed a particularly blunt and vicious character. From his calls to expand the wall on the US-Mexico border, to his zero-tolerance policy that helped spawn a vast network of privatized detention camps, Donald Trump has consistently sought to ratchet up tensions between his increasingly unhinged base and the migrants and refugees chasing the promise of a better life. Over the next 30 minutes, we'll take a closer look at this wave of racist, anti-migrant sentiment coursing through American society. Along the way, We'll talk to a number of individuals as they share their experiences of resisting the border, supporting undocumented detainees, fighting back against La Migra, and making a whole lot of trouble. Some of the historical context that we need to address in regards to immigration from Latin America to the US are the fact first that our entire continent was invaded by the Europeans taking over. There was genocide, stolen of the lands, the creation of the global north based on colonization, taking over our wealth and savaging our resources. The border that is an act of violence is an act of colonization that affects mestizos, it affects indigenous people, it affects everybody. It affects our river, 
because the river is treated differently as soon as it crosses the imaginary line. The border region is an area where these colonial regimes are competing for territory and competing for legitimacy, and they create their legitimacy based on occupying indigenous land and trying to delegitimize indigenous sovereignty. Once we realize that that's you know, the fundamental core of the colonial project, we can start thinking about taking down these borders. The U.S. policy nowadays under Trump has not really shifted. It is not a break from previous administrations. It's built based on previous administrations. The tragedy of the Twin Towers was the excuse to create the Department of Homeland Security, was the excuse to create Immigration Customs Enforcement, and it was the excuse to privatize immigration detention. The U.S. is the largest consumer of illicit drugs. The drug market is what's replacing the agricultural economies of Latin America. The only way for people to economically survive in a lot of locations is through drug trafficking. And drug trafficking is taking over their areas and pushing them out. And so people are coming here fleeing, you know, the gangs and the cartels. When I was in detention, I got to know a lot of people from El Salvador who uh, were fleeing police violence and gang violence. And a big part of the stories and those conversations that we had were about how United States foreign policy and intervention have created those conditions for that violence to take place. It's easier to risk crossing the border and, and living a, a life without documentation than to, to stay at home. A lot of women who are victims of sexual assault and domestic violence fleeing those situations, trying to come to a safer location. You also have a lot of queer, trans, LGBTQ folks who are also fleeing situations of violence and extreme discrimination where they're not able to find employment, they're afraid to leave their houses. A lot of the folks coming across have been already victimized by a hate crime. Border militarization and state violence against immigrants are always linked together. And border militarization is military occupation of indigenous land. And people seem to forget that when we talk about the immigration issue and there's these calls to like reinforce the border, secure the border, militarize the border. That border is tribal land and there are tribal communities along that border. And so you're, what you're doing when you're calling for those things is calling for the military occupation of those indigenous communities. And so indigenous communities feel the brunt of the immigration repression in, in a way that no other community in the U.S. does. President Obama signed into law a $600 million bill to deploy some 1,500 new Border Patrol agents and law enforcement officials along the border, as well as two aerial surveillance drones. The state controls movement, both you know, Mexico and the United States. We have a situation where families are separated, and it's not just the family separation that you're seeing on the news, but we're talking about the Bob families that have been separated for, you know, since the 1940s um, have not been able to see each other. We're talking about relatives not being able to go to funerals. We're talking about traditional gatherings that will never be a tribal gathering because a whole tribe can't participate. You see a lot of Native people going out to land that they know well and making sure that nobody's dying there because this is sacred land. This is land that has nurtured people for 
thousands of years since creation, and it was never intended to be a space where people died crossing. The lack of the ability to freely move has been detrimental to us. We have had uh, very recently a tribal member die crossing the desert uh, because the traditional routes up the river that would have been taken are so heavily controlled and militarized, it forces people to take dangerous corridors. On August 8, 2019, U.S. Immigration Customs Enforcement, or ICE, conducted the largest statewide immigration raid in American history. Over 600 federal agents targeted seven food processing plants across six cities in Mississippi, detaining 680 undocumented workers. The raid took place on the first day of school, leaving many local children shocked and traumatized when their parents failed to pick them up after class and they were left with nowhere to go. Let my parents be free. I need my dad for me. <laughs> my dad didn't do nothing. He's not a criminal. As one of his first acts in office, Donald J. Trump signed an executive order calling for the hiring of 10,000 new ICE agents and promising to speed up the deportation of those he's so fond of referring to as illegals. In the months and years that have followed, ICE has become the most hated federal agency in the United States. Liberals and so-called progressives have called for its abolition. A weeks-long series of protest encampments dubbed Occupy ICE broke out in cities across the country, temporarily blocking field offices and detention centers and slowing down operations. And more recently, ICE facilities and the homes of its agents have been hit by a wave of vandalism, sabotage, and other attacks. A search is underway for one or more suspects. The FBI says shot at an ICE office in San Antonio overnight. Agents worry there could be more attacks ahead. In the coming years, as the American state continues to escalate its war on migrant communities, it's a fair bet that those who hunt down and deport people for a living will continue to face an escalation of their own. Let's hope so. It's not coincidence that the first day of announcing his campaign, Trump went after my community. We figured this would be bad, but we didn't expect the intensity of this war against us so quickly. They're coming after us. They have no shame about it. They're very direct, very clear that they want us out. They're committing ethnic cleansing. The U.S. immigration system today is just one big department at federal level called Department of Homeland Security. Under this department, there are basically three main agencies. One is like the administrative agency that runs the applications, fingerprints, etc. And they're called USCIS or United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. The other two agencies that are separate supposedly are the enforcement agencies, which is the police. That is Customs and Border Protection, CBP, based on the borders and ports of entry, all the way inland for 100 miles. So that's a third of the country. And most of the 
big important cities are within those 100 miles. So CBP has a lot of jurisdiction. And the other one is called Immigration Customs Enforcement or ICE. They do the inland work of detention and deportations. ICE has also somehow a jurisdiction within the 100 miles. Sometimes it's hard to know if there's a difference between the two. Sometimes the only difference that we see is that CBP has uniforms and ICE doesn't. ICE usually runs in non-marked cars. They dress in civil clothing. When they're ready to do operations, then they wear vests that says police. They have deep collaboration with state agencies. They also receive a lot of information through surveillance and technology. They have a contract with Palantir, which is a software company that uh, develops the apps for them to read, for example, the license plates of cars. They also use the Amazon cloud services for all their operations. They use social media. They're using facial recognition software. Amazon was trying to sell their facial recognition software to them. Uh, we don't know where that sale is at, but Amazon is not shy about it. They don't really care. So they became really sophisticated in the usage of high technology. So they can really find people anywhere. When I started this work in 2014 and I came out publicly as undocumented, I knew that they knew who I was. But I did not expect that they would just all of a sudden send me a letter on December 20th of 2017 to my house saying that uh, they had begun the partition proceedings against me. La Resistencia decided that this was not about me, that we needed to use my case to elevate the work and we wouldn't let ICE intimidate me or our group and we would go on the offensive. So what we did is we came public, we announced what was happening. It was incredible the response of the people, they're the community, not only here in Seattle or Washington, but throughout the nation. But we knew that I wasn't the only one. We learned of so many other colleagues and comrades throughout the nation that have been also targeted by ICE. My family is originally from Mexico. We crossed over into El Paso when I was very young on a permit which eventually expired. For a majority of my life I lived with no status and then eventually in more recent years I was able to go under DACA. In the United States I was involved in various types of organizing part of that was building movement and resistance in my community against immigration and against police as a whole. I was taking part in an occupation outside of a nice detention center and one morning had left the camp and as I was walking down the street I was stopped by unmarked police vehicles with plainclothes officers I was handcuffed and put into the back of a truck. From there, I was taken to the back of an abandoned Walmart where I was surrounded by various ICE and Homeland Security officers, both plain clothes and in armor. From there, I was taken to Pearsall Detention Center about 40 minutes away. I was questioned by FBI agents about my 
involvement in movements, as they put it, and I was questioned about people I, I knew, people in the camp, and I was promised that if I was to give up information, that they could talk to an immigration judge and that it could really help my case. I didn't give up any information, and from there I was processed and sent down to Laredo. After I was sent down to Laredo, I was given a, a great legal team and we fought hard. However, we really didn't see any case where I could be freed on that side of the border. And so after about 40 days in detention, I did ask for my deportation. I was given a 10 year ban from re-entering the United States and ha had to start a whole new life here in Mexico. June of 2018, the first images were broadcast of the debacle that eventually became known as the Trump administration's family separation policy. By the time the world saw the harrowing images of what was happening on the U.S. southern border, over 2,700 children were already trapped in the system. This included dozens of children under the age of five who had been shipped off to buildings referred to in official state jargon as tender age facilities but more popularly known as baby jails. The state-sanctioned policy of ripping children from their parents and detaining them in separate facilities was officially rescinded on June 20th, 2018, although the practice continues on a smaller scale. Meanwhile, the official state policy has shifted to detaining children alongside their parents indefinitely or shipping them back to Mexican border towns where they will wait for years to have their asylum applications denied. The overcrowding and dehumanizing conditions found in migrant detention facilities perpetuates an increasingly racist and sadistic culture among the U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents tasked with overseeing them. This is clearly reflected in the reports of widespread sexual abuse being carried out against women and children in these family detention centers, and the details of a recent leak exposing the existence of a private Facebook group where agents were caught swapping racist anti-migrant memes and openly joking about raping their female critics in Congress. Profiting off this depravity are private detention contractors who continue to rake in hundreds of millions of dollars in government contracts each year. These are often for-profit prisons. 
and they're maximizing their profits by packing more people than can fit in the facility in the facility and then reducing to the bare minimum the amount of supplies that they give them. The conditions in detention are there to create a sense of dread and a sense of desperation and to make you lose hope about fighting your case. Anytime a guard knocks on the window or calls out your name, you're, you're worried maybe you're getting moved somewhere or you're going to court and aren't able to notify your lawyer, which happened to me very early on. This policy of imprisoning folks in these squalid conditions is intentionally inflicting what will be historical trauma on this entire generation of migrants. In the past, we didn't have privatized immigration detention. The detention uh, was minimal. Um, deportations were minimal. It really ballooned under Obama. But what we have seen under the Trump administration is that they have utilized every single aspect of the immigration law and criminal law to expand this machine, to make it really a war on immigrants. We wanted to do a shutdown action outside the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma. We wanted to bring light to what's happening in Washington State. So in February of 2014, 10 of us, including me and another colleague, that both of us were undocumented, shut down for a day deportations outside the detention center in Tacoma. We were able to stop two buses, and then when a third, a small van was coming out trying to leave, Five of us ran to the back to the small street to stop the little van that was trying to leave. I noticed how angry the driver of the bus was when he wasn't able to leave. But then right behind him, I could see a hands uh, moving and the hands were really close to each other. I realized that there were people handcuffed, uh, waving at us, moving their hands. And I couldn't see their faces, but I could see their hands moving. What we were doing was the right thing, although I was exposing myself to be arrested, detained, and possibly deported. About two weeks after we did that action, we got calls from radio stations, from relatives, from lawyers. Uh, everybody were calling us saying, there's a hunger strike in the detention center, and the people organizing it want to talk to you all. What are the detainees trying to achieve with this hunger strike? Sure, well, this hunger strike started last Friday with uh, reportedly some 1,200 detainees going on hunger strike. Basically, what they want is an end to all deportations across the country and really an improvement to their conditions right now at the Pacific Northwest Detention Center, which is run by the private prison contractor, Geo Group. The hunger strike lasted altogether 56 days. And after the hunger strike ended, we came together as a volunteer group and we decided that we wanted to continue. Our work is to shut down the detention center in Tacoma by following the leadership of those detained. Q13 News obtained this video from the July 13th rampage. And Tacoma police say around 4 o'clock that morning, 69-year-old Willem Van Spronsen from Bashan Island attacked the facility. He was armed with a rifle and firebombs, and police say he set fire to his own vehicle during the chaos, which is what you see here. Officers responded, shots were fired, and Van Spronson died at the scene. Who was Will? We don't know. <laughs> we never met him. 
Um, we learn of his name the day uh, that he was killed by Tacoma Police Department outside the detention center in Tacoma. Uh, we learned that he was an anarchist that had joined some local groups. Uh, obviously, we were extremely sad. A lot of people might want us to condemn what he did. We believe that we shouldn't police other people's actions. I personally think he did what he felt it was needed. And although I don't understand it, I feel a lot of pain for his death. Again, for us, it just reflects the, the frustration that so many have throughout the country because we're getting to levels of violence that we have never seen before. If we aren't willing to challenge the infrastructure, if we're not willing to take action to decrease the profit margins for the companies that are profiting off of these camps, then we're not really doing anything effective. Protesting, blocking a, a parking lot, trying to make the employees feel bad, isn't gonna work. They're profiting off of it, they've been profiting off of it for the last 20 years. But cutting into the pocketbook of these, these corporations and these agencies is gonna be the only way that these camps are going to be abolished. Crowds of asylum seekers standing for hours in a parking lot that's been hastily retrofitted into a makeshift detention camp. A terror-stricken woman clutching her children's hands as she runs from clouds of tear gas at the San Diego-Tijuana border crossing. A mass shooting at a Walmart justified by a delusional claim of self-defense against a perceived migrant invasion. As scenes like these become increasingly normalized, the myth of the American dream slowly dies, bleeding out on the pavement in real time. Recoiling from the sinking realization of what their country is capable of, liberals and so-called progressives ignore the reality of what it's always been. Rather than coming to terms with the evil that is the United States of America, they place their faith in the liberal coastal enclaves of so-called sanctuary cities and pin their hopes on the 2020 elections. But no matter the outcome of the next election, this problem did not begin and won't end with Donald Trump. The American state will continue to create more refugees and it will continue to use the specter of those refugees to justify further militarizing its borders. The sooner that people come to terms with this fact, the sooner they can figure out what they're willing to do about it. needs to be a little bit more fluid across the border. We really need to step away from identifying our individual anti-border imperialism movements by imperial definitions. You know, when we only organize on the U.S. side or only organize on the Mexico side, that's going to limit us. If you look at the 
effective labor movements that were happening, especially at the turn of the 20th century in Arizona. It was a mixture of Mexican and American people that were coming together and organizing. Now, us tribes, we've always had that cross-border because we have family on both sides. And so those familial connections run deep. When we get together and think about how does this state violence impact us in different ways and how can we actually have the difficult conversations that we need to have between people coming from different experiences, then we can actually take the system down. So when I've sat in, in conversations where I've seen tribal communities, migrant communities actually sit down and have difficult conversations about, about settler colonialism, about what does it mean, to be in our different positionalities and historical experiences and how we're often pitted against each other for our own survival. And once we realize that, you know, this is divide and conquer tactic and we sit down and confront it and think about, okay, how are we each complicit in each other's repression? Repression, how can we undo that complicity? How can we actually have solidarity for each other? So I think that there's a lot that can come out of that once we realize that we can actually move as a community and build things as a community and provide for each other as a community. If we get enough people, we can take down these, these systems, you know, we can take down these prisons. If you don't have connections throughout the colonial states and you're not actively working against that colonial border from both sides, then you're only looking at half the equation. If you don't have comrades on the, the Mexico side that have a safe house for you and, and vice versa, if you don't have a safe house on this side for them, then you're not thinking about things outside of the imperial narrative. And that lacks efficacy. It's very simple. Listen to people detain. That's what we do. We listen to people detained. We follow their leadership. We all want that place shut down, but we believe, as Cipriano Rios Alegria, one of the best organizers inside, one of the best hunger strikes organizers ever, he told us the walls are coming down and they're crumbling from the inside, but they need a push from the outside. It's important to understand the reasons why the place exists in the first place, why it was built in Tacoma, why it's still there, why the city of Tacoma hasn't shut it down, why Washington State lives with this place, this sore in our midst. But it's also important to understand that we shouldn't be arrogant to think that we know what to do or that we have the solution. The experts are inside the detention center and we need to listen to them. We have a lot of like well-meaning white comrades who try to come out and they want to help with the border and so you know they're going to do something like a water drop and sometimes you know that's good like uh, no more deaths really is on point with their with their work but a lot of people just come out and they'll drop water in a place where there's not really any migrants crossing or something like that and and it's just kind of like you really need to be talking to the locals, you need to be talking to the indigenous people who know that area, who know where the need is, who know what specific infrastructure is being utilized to oppress people. And you need to be basically asking like, what can we do 
to work with the local communities instead of trying to become this outside force that's coming in to exert your own power. Uh, autonomy needs to come from a cooperative effort of all parties involved, but especially those that are directly uh, affected by border imperialism and border violence. So for people that want to get involved, well, become involved with La Resistencia because we have created a system what we call the inside-outside, where we know how to connect with people detained. At the end of the day, when people call us from the detention center, which they call us every day, every hour, the way we introduce ourselves is we're volunteers and we're people del pueblo. We're people like you. The only difference is that we're not detained. And it is our responsibility to do something. So we ask people to join us and to not get tired and not get frustrated because things are only going to get worse until they get better. For anybody who's currently undocumented and is in the struggle against ICE and the border and deportations, really envision a world without any of those things and assess how hard you're really willing to fight to bring that world into reality and then find people who are like you. And from there, really just only be as careful as you want to be. The coming years are poised to see ever-growing levels of human migration, even as automation and advances in artificial intelligence shrink labor markets and increase the percentage of the population deemed surplus to the needs of capital. Within this context, states will seek to further militarize their borders, while far-right militias and other vigilantes will be increasingly emboldened to carry out paramilitary attacks on migrant communities and ethnic and religious minorities. This is a trend that is already playing out around the world, and sadly, it seems set to continue, particularly on the US-Mexico border. Faced with this dire scenario, it is more important than ever that anarchists begin taking seriously the need to build autonomous community self-defense networks and systems of functional mutual aid. This work can seem daunting, but it begins with small steps, such as the fostering of new social relationships that are rooted in solidarity and common struggles. So at this point, we'd like to remind you that trouble is intended to be watched in groups and to be used as a resource to promote discussion and collective organizing. Are you interested in getting more involved in migrant solidarity work or in starting a campaign against a local detention facility in your area? Consider getting together with some comrades, organizing a screening of this film, and discussing where to get started. Interested in running regular screenings of trouble at your campus, info shop, community center, or even just at home with some friends? Become a troublemaker. For 10 bucks a month, we'll hook you up with an advanced copy of the show and a screening kit featuring additional resources and some questions you can use to get a discussion going. If you can't afford to support us financially, no worries. You can stream and or download all of our content for free off of our website, sub.media slash trouble. If you've got any suggestions for show topics or just want to get in touch, drop us a line at trouble at sub.media. 
This episode would not have been possible without the generous support of Percy, Doug, La Resistencia, and the IAF. Stay tuned next month for Trouble 22, as we take a closer look at climate change, the chaos it's wreaking on our world, and our collective inability to alter our current trajectory. You are gonna lose London, parts of New York, Boston, parts of Washington. 30 feet of sea level rise probably displaces roughly half a billion people, 500 million people. Now get out there and make some trouble. Oh, license registration, yeah. my license registration is trying to send me to the fucking immigration, the fucking immigration is. You see the cops pull me over, the cops pull me over. Yeah, now I'm just round with my amigos, round with my amigos. I'm screaming, fuck la policia, fuck la policia. Uh, I be like, fuck la policia, fuck la policia, hey. Fuck.